Hello and welcome to The Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Today's edition of the Global Insight is about climate change. That's a gradual process that can bring sudden and dramatic impact. Those of you who are regular listeners of the Global Insight will notice that we're starting this podcast a little bit differently. That's because as we were recording it, talking about the devastating effect of weather and floods in the United States and here in London, the skies opened up over parts of France, Belgium, and Germany. This is a stark reminder that climate change is becoming ever more a climate crisis, or more specifically, a chain of crises scattered across the globe near all of us. Companies are under increasing pressure from regulators, civil society, shareholder, stakeholders to address ESG-related issues more proactively and more forcefully, they can no longer really ignore those kinds of things. That's Jonathan Wood, principal based in our Washington, D.C. office. Jonathan, it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere again. And as was the case last year, this time of year, California's on fire. It's not just California. We've got already early large-scale fire seasons in Oregon, in Washington State, in other parts of the mountain, Western US, in British Columbia, Canada. I mean, these are places that last year experienced, in many cases, record fire seasons. And I think following a truly historic mega drought, the stage is set this year for an even more catastrophic situation. I remember dealing with our clients around some of these issues last year. It was posing you know, health and safety issues, operational risks, because some of these fires were, were encroaching on major US cities. You know, so. We are looking at that again in the summer of 2021. So companies that thought that they should get busy on a long-term strategy for climate change are realizing now that they really don't have the time to do that anymore, do they? No, that's exactly right. These are threats, hazards that are manifesting now in the environment. These are certainly among the higher profile ones globally, but things like water stress, threats to power system infrastructure. We had that not not because of heat, but because of extreme cold in Texas in the US this year as well, causing massive disruption and, and imposing huge costs on business. These types of weather extremes are are happening now in the US and right around the world. And and we have seen a shift, haven't we, Jonathan, in public opinion, as we've all been experiencing more of these extreme weather events that has shifted perceptions of how confident we can be that they are linked to climate change influenced by the behavior of human beings. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the the sort of discourse and discussion around anthropogenic climate change has changed a lot as a result of these types of hazards. Um, Certainly here in the US, there is now much more explicit coverage of these events as climate driven. And I think this is being taken on both by companies and by the public at large. We just had something that was called a a heat dome in much of the 
Western US that absolutely shattered longstanding max temperature records. I mean, on the metric system, you know, we had 47 degrees in Portland, Oregon, which is just historic levels of, of heat. We've got 42 today in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, a city of 5 million people. We're only got 33 in, in Washington, here in Washington, DC. So it's, it's pretty much par for the course. But I mean, th this, this heat dome, this was an event that was just widely viewed as a direct consequence of human induced climate change. And as a result, it's really driving more urgency around what governments and companies and society need to do in response. You have in the United States, President Biden and U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken saying that there are going to be two principles underlying U.S. foreign policy. One is the U.S. working class and the other was climate. Is this now a change in the way big international players are going to engage with each other? I think let me say very bluntly that we are at or very near an inflection point where climate change is the most important factor for domestic policy, foreign policy, and business activity and strategy going forward. It's such an encompassing issue, and it's one that really demands a high degree of international cooperation that it's going to just drive all of these policies and decision-making activities over the long term. So in a world where countries actually find it quite difficult to talk to each other at times, is this one of those, and forgive the expression, but is this one of the slightly softer issues that even countries that are otherwise hostile towards each other can cooperate on? That's certainly the hope here in Washington. I mean, as we have an escalating US-China strategic competition, climate change is one area where both Washington and Beijing have suggested there is room for cooperation. I think we'll have to see how that exactly plays out. And we also have just this week, the introduction by the EU, of course, the other major poll in the geopolitical order, the introduction of a new raft of climate and environmental measures that, that may well include some of these much discussed carbon border adjustment tariffs, which might really be one of those things that help drive convergence in international and foreign policy, but you know, are also bound to stoke tensions between countries and, and even within the bloc itself over you know, exactly how much climate ambition is compatible with economic development objectives, right? Do you think COP26 later this year could be a game changer? I think it's safe to say that those festering issues will still be festering at and, and after COP26. I mean, this summit is all about strengthening ambition in line with the perceived urgency of the threat. It's worth bearing in mind that the IPCC, the International Panel of Scientific Experts that Studies Climate Change, is due to issue you know, its first report in several years updating the scientific understanding and basis around climate change. And I think we'll probably see in that report, you know, some either increased confidence or a sense that some of the impacts are manifesting, you know, faster and sooner than, than maybe was anticipated. And, you know, this COP26 has a lot of momentum behind it, especially because of the US. But some of those issues that you mentioned, Claudine, like financing for less developed countries, they haven't been resolved. Biden hosted a climate summit, of course, in April on Earth Day. 
one of the main takeaways of which was simply reiterating the longstanding commitment by rich countries to finance climate adaptation and mitigation in poor countries. But, you know, the money still has to show up. I think the good news is that, you know, business is not standing idly by while some of these higher level geopolitical discussions take place. One of the things that I've been most struck by working with some of our clients, especially in the extractive space, is how quickly they're moving to update and increase their own voluntary ambitions around things like climate and environmental performance in line with some of the performance standards and ESG standards that are out there in the marketplace. And also that many of these standards are under continuous development and being continually revised in terms of what they require of companies on reporting, on disclosures, and on ambition. So there are some really interesting movements in that space that are happening you know, alongside and even ahead of what government is doing. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment. But if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week, we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. Do look at our second quarter security incident report that will be available on the controlrisks.com website for an assessment of the latest trends in security incidents worldwide. Jonathan, countries and companies are almost tripping over themselves to issue these increasingly ambitious energy transition or carbon neutral targets. Do you believe any of them? Does the market believe in them? Do regulators play along with this? You know, the market and corporate strategy is absolutely heading in that direction. And the question has been for a couple of years now, but especially in the last, I'd say, one or two years, whether or not we are reaching a kind of critical mass that brings together all of these different risk dimensions, technology, policy, financial risk, legal risk, regulatory risk, and reputational risk to drive the energy transition in a more concerted fashion. I think there are some, certainly some signs that this is really happening. And in some ways quicker than ever, we, we had, of course, and I think we discussed in a previous podcast how you know, there has been shareholder activism in the energy sector forcing big international oil companies to address the energy transition more directly. We have significant investments being contemplated here in the US, in the EU, in China, and elsewhere in renewables that have brought down the cost of those energy systems to be competitive with or even outcompete you know, traditional forms of energy. We have technological developments, of course, that are enabling all of this with more on the horizon. So you know, this isn't a kind of light switch situation where there's one policy or one regulatory enforcement or one statement that, that makes it all happen. But we do have a package of things coming together that do seem to be accelerating this process. And corporate action is, is of course, a huge part of that. We're talking about you know, the main economic actors worldwide making very significant commitments on environmental and climate related issues. What are the challenges that companies face as they themselves rush to adopt ambitious targets on climate change and be part of the solution? That's a great question. I mean, as I suggested at the outset, I think, you know, companies don't have maybe as much time as they thought to get a grip on these issues. 
But the very first stage that's absolutely essential for any type of climate or environmental reporting and disclosure is to understand, you know, what they're doing in their business to measure it and to quantify it. And that's, it sounds simple, but it's actually extraordinarily complex to do that with something like greenhouse gas emissions or water usage or impacts on biodiversity. What we see now are many companies trying to get those processes in place inside their organization. You know, you've got to have teams of technical experts that know how to do this. You have to have strategic vision and tone from the top that sets the types of targets and priorities to make it happen. You've got to have investment, of course, in, in those processes as well. You know, that's a multi-year process to get that underway. And I think, you know, what we do see now are many companies working at that first stage of, you know, environmental compliance to get the measurements and the quantification in place so that they can set meaningful and credible performance targets and then measure performance against those targets over the next few years and, and to, you know, kind of key deadlines, the 2030 sustainable development goals deadline, for example, as, as one of the big one that's driving corporate action. And then beyond that, of course, the, uh, the 2050 sort of carbon neutrality goal, you know, those are really the two long-term deadlines that many companies are planning against. And you know, here in 2021, some companies have very long-standing and elaborate sustainability programs, but some companies are just getting those off the ground. Jonathan, we've spent most of this podcast so far talking about the environment, which is the E in a slightly longer acronym that on top of all of the other things that companies have to worry about adds S and G, create an ESG complex, if you will. How do companies simultaneously concern themselves with and effectively and meaningfully address not just the environmental pressure that they're under, but also issues of social risk and questions of governance? What, what we see with our clients is you know, increased commitment and increased ambition. And this is coming from regulators, it's coming from shareholders, from stakeholders, and from civil society pushing them to take these issues you know, under advisement and address them more directly and proactively. This is very difficult, of course, especially for companies that have really extensive global supply chains. And you know, I might add that the COVID pandemic hasn't helped in terms of some of the measurement and auditing activities that companies you know, would normally perform in the course of implementing a environmental or social compliance program. There's been a, a huge amount of operational disruption to teams limits on the ability to travel, and of course, a great deal of sort of strategic uncertainty for their business. So, you know, the, the last year has definitely been, been difficult in this space, but pressure is, is not going away. I mean, just in the last week, we've had the introduction by both the US and the EU of guidance to the private sector on forced labor due diligence in global supply chains. And this is becoming an area of increased scrutiny and certainly increased regulatory emphasis in, in those countries. And, you know, of course, around the world, we have a raft of modern slavery laws, including in places like the UK and Australia and Canada, that are really making some of those compliance requirements mandatory. So moving beyond a kind of corporate responsibility program into a legal compliance obligation. That's, that's certainly been one, one key driver of this. I think most companies are not addressing these issues in isolation, they're looking at environment, social, and governance compliance as part of becoming a more sustainable 
transparent and accountable business, that's really the best approach to take. So governments are making all these pledges, companies are really rapidly changing their behaviours and also committing themselves to very ambitious targets. But fundamentally, it's change is going to come down to individuals and the choices they make and the way they choose to conduct their lives. There need to be top-down and bottom-up actions and initiatives. One thing that government can do really, really well is break some of the collective action problems that stymie progress in areas like renewable energy. You look at Germany or the US, for example, where subsidies have been key to increasing penetration of renewables and bringing down the cost, putting them within reach of more companies and you know more individual households. That, that is something that might not have happened on its own. That is the purpose of a government intervention. But ultimately, you know, things like electric vehicles, for example, we have very ambitious electrification targets from major vehicle manufacturers, from governments, but those are going to be driven by individual consumer behavior, the uptake, the achievement of those types of goals. You can't, you may be able to reduce the supply of, you know, ICE engines, but you probably can't force people to buy electric vehicles. They have to do that. And they're only going to do that when some of those issues like, you know, charging infrastructure, range, and other technological hurdles have been surmounted, right? So there absolutely has to be a, a meeting at both levels of the sort of top-down initiatives that, that we're often talking about and that often drive business behavior and the bottom-up behaviors and actions of individual consumers and of society at large. Well, you know, Jonathan, we're all sort of citizens of different constituencies, aren't we? I mean, we are corporate citizens. And so the companies that employ us will behave differently with respect to the environment. We are citizens of communities that we live in. And, and around the corner from where I live, not too, too long ago, there was an electrical vehicle charging point installed. And initially, people would walk by and look at it as if, as if it was some sort of strange piece of public sculpture. And there is now actually a queue of cars waiting to charge their batteries before driving on. And you hope that that means that there'll be two or three more charging points. And then we're also citizens of individual households where you know we take individual actions about what we recycle and what we don't and, and, and what we consume and how we consume it. Perhaps there'll come a point in the future where all of these different constituencies will converge. And whether companies take the lead or communities take the lead or individual households take the lead is something that we have yet to see. I think the question is, how fast is that happening? And is what we're seeing in British Columbia, Portland, Oregon, Australia, uh, and, and other parts of the world going to make it happen faster? Jonathan, thanks as ever for joining us. Chuck, Claudine, always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And... Goodbye from me.